You've heard of Grammarly, and you might think it's a fancy spell check, but people on your team have been using it and loving it for years because it does way more than you realize. Grammarly is a secure AI writing partner that works seamlessly across apps and websites and can write an instant first draft in a few clicks, not a few hours. When every word your team writes is clear, concise and on brand, companies can save 19 days per employee per year. Learn what better writing can do for your company at Grammarly.com. Grammarly. Easier said, done. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com. From the heart of where innovation, money, and power collide, in Silicon Valley and beyond, this is Bloomberg Technology with Emily Chang. I'm Ed Ludlow in New York in for Emily Chang. This is Bloomberg Technology. Coming up in the next hour, Bloomberg's conversation with Microsoft CEO Satya Nadella and LinkedIn CEO Ryan Roslansky about monitoring productivity and why Nadella is so confident about approval for Microsoft's acquisition of Activision Blizzard. Plus, Mark Benioff is throwing Dreamforce, the biggest convention to hit San Francisco since the pandemic began. The Bloomberg tech team was also on site and asked Benioff about his future at sales force and the economy. And Impossible Foods joins the climate pledge to reduce carbon emissions to net zero by 2040. I'll ask CEO Peter McGuinness about the role his company's playing in the global warming battle. We'll get to that in a moment. But first, let's get a look at the markets. And we had a tech tumble following Wednesday's Fed rate rise. Joining us all to break it all down, Bloomberg's Katie Greifold. Hi, Katie. Hi, Ed. Well, I have good news and bad news. The good news is that I think we're on set together for the first time ever. So that's huge. The bad news is that it was a terrible day in the stock market. Like you said, that hangover from the Fed on Wednesday continued. You could see it in the Nasdaq 100, those big tech stocks, that index falling over 1%. Chips also taking a beating out, underperforming down almost 3%. And it was the riskier parts of the market that really took it on the chin the most. If you look at these unprofitable tech basket, down almost 5% today. Of all this coming in a backdrop of higher and getting higher Treasury yields. You're looking at the two-year Treasury yield right there, raising another seven basis points as traders adjust to an ever more hawkish Fed. And let's look what that relationship looks like. If you look at the two-year yield versus stocks, you're looking against the S&P 500. You can see that for a while, actually, these two were rising together. But now as that two-year Treasury yield continues and continues to climb. You're starting to see that revaluation going on in the broader stock market and the S&P 500 nearing its lows from earlier in the summer. But let's talk about some of the specific single names you have on the board here. Some of the travel names taking a beating today. We're talking about Expedia and Airbnb. Bulls falling as recession fears continue to build. You did see Alphabet shares rise a little bit. And Activision Blizzard 
like you were saying, Ed, Microsoft saying that they're still confident that that purchase will go through. All right, we'll talk a little bit about, more about that now. Thanks, Katie. Employees say they're productive at work, but leaders say they're not so sure. This according to new data released by Microsoft and LinkedIn. Microsoft is also releasing a new suite of productivity tools to facilitate better interaction between workers and their bosses to combat what Microsoft CEO Satya Nadella calls the productivity paranoia paradox. Bloomberg's Emily Chang spoke with him about all this and more, along with LinkedIn CEO Ryan Roslansky on Wednesday. Take a listen to what they had to say. This productivity paranoia, uh, as we describe it, um, is one of the things that's emerging where the managers and the leaders think that their employees are not productive, whereas employees uh, feel that they're being very productive and in many cases even feel burnt out. So I think one of the most important things for us in this new world of work and hybrid work is to bridge this uh, paradox in some sense because we have to figure out, because both sides need the same thing. Employees feel that they are thriving and they need to thrive. That means they need to really feel a sense of empowerment. They need to have that sense of energy to do meaningful work. And after all, as a leader and as a manager, what do you need? You need your employees to thrive. So I think we need both new soft skills and managerial skills to make that happen, but you also absolutely need new tools. Now, Ryan, Microsoft, speaking of those tools, is offering several products. You've got Viva Goals to help align workers with the business, Viva Pulse to get a better sense of how employees are feeling, there's Engage, there's Amplify to encourage interaction and communication. How do you think these tools, Ryan, are unique to the products that are already out there? Well, I think, you know, uh, on, on the VIA side, at the end of the day, if you want a productive workforce, the most important thing, first and foremost, is that you empower the individual to be productive. Secondly, that you understand that an individual doesn't work alone. They need to collaborate. So ensuring they have the tools to collaborate as well. And on the end, now a new really important skill managers need is to ensure the well-being of their employees. And I think a lot of the Viva suite brings that together. And then obviously we're able to leverage a lot of what we see on LinkedIn to help inform that. There is a ton of uncertainty uh, obviously happening in the world. You know, the last time I think we spoke, Emily, maybe 18 months ago, we were seeing uh, across the LinkedIn data an unprecedented amount of movement happening in the labor market. We saw employees uh, everywhere, not only questioning how and where they work, but why they work. And it was leading to what we call the great reshuffle. We're actually seeing that now start to come down a little bit. Actually, for the first time in 18 months, the year-over-year trend in people changing jobs on LinkedIn is flat. So things are starting to settle right now, but it's entering into a new period of uncertainty. Satya, in the early days of the pandemic, you expressed your concern that we were burning social capital by spending so much time away from the office. Are you finding now, I'm curious about your personal experience, are you finding now that you were right, that, that this has come at a cost to social capital and that needs to be rebuilt? Yeah, no, there's no question that um, social capital needs to be rebuilt. But the one thing, Emily, I think we all also learned is how to build social capital in a variety of ways. One of the things even during the pandemic I personally learned is I met more people. 
Uh, for example, on a Teams call, I would <laughs> click on the profile of every person in the meeting, learn so much more about them. Uh, and now when I see them in person, I know the, I, I feel like I know them much more deeply. So I think I picked up a new skill of how to build social capital, and that's going to remain uh, with us. But to your other point, even in fact, one of the data points that in the Work Trends Index we talked about is people come to work for other people, not because of some policy. And so that, I think, should teach us as leaders something, which is you as a leader now should develop the soft skill to create essentially those events which allow you to bring people together with other people in order to be able to accomplish things uh, that are important for your workplace. So to me, uh, I think that social capital will always be important. Uh, and I think we have learned maybe some new skills and some of the old skills that were there, uh, I think are going to be re you know, relearned by all of us and exercised in different ways about, depending on the team. There's a big debate happening right now about remote work surveillance, or at least that's what the critics call it. Satya, what's your point of view on companies that think they need to track their employees through technology and whether Microsoft's products or tools should enable that? Now, first of all, I think any product, including all of our products, have to be built ensuring that privacy, privacy regulation, privacy laws by country uh, are all built right into the product. So let's start with that. But if you sort of say, what are all these tools for? Ultimately, for the business, these tools are about really helping their employees thrive. Uh, because the, the only way a business is successful and productive is if employees feel that sense of empowerment, that sense of energy and connection uh, for the company's mission and are doing meaningful work. And so to me, it's not about surveillance. It's more about helping employees thrive. That needs to be the goal, goal of even using these tools. Satya. Inflation is at a record high. We heard Ryan mention the word uncertainty several times. One of your executives recently at a Goldman conference said it's the most uncertain economic environment we've seen in decades. How would you describe the level of uncertainty you are seeing right now and how that's impacting your outlook? Yeah, I mean, the constraints are real. Um, you know, uh, inflation um, is, uh, is definitely uh, all around us. Uh, and different parts of the world have different type of economic growth. Uh, but the constraints, I think, are being felt by everyone. So to me, I always go back, Emily, to the point that in an uncertain time, in an inflationary time, software is the deflationary force. Uh, so to me, staying super focused as a company, ensuring that our customers are able to do more with less, uh, I think is going to be the key uh, thing that we have to accomplish in the quarters ahead. So in terms of outlook, uh, I am optimistic about Microsoft's value proposition helping our customers. I'm op optimistic about our share. But we're not immune uh, from anything that is a macroeconomic headwind. Uh, but we go into this with knowing that fully well that the digital skills we have, the digital products we have, and software fundamentally is probably going to be the most useful tool uh, that will help us tame inflation where, because it's a deflationary force. So Tim Cook uh, told me Apple is going to be more deliberate about spending as the macroeconomic crisis continues. How would you describe Microsoft's strategy? And if you are going to be more conservative, how much longer do you plan to be more conservative? 
Yeah, I mean, two points. One is we've grown a lot uh, in the sense in last year we grew 70 plus thousand people joined Microsoft. Uh, so I do think we are going to be more deliberate. Uh, when I say, what, what does a deliberate mean? It means wherever we need to grow, we will grow. Where we need to be more productive, which is everywhere, we will be also, in fact, taking the same medicine, which is doing more with less. Uh, so I think it's a great opportunity, quite frankly, for us at Microsoft uh, to practice what we preach, which is to be able to make sure uh, that we take the 70,000 people, make them feel part of Microsoft's purpose and mission, uh, really help us improve our culture because of all the things that they can contribute to our workplace. Uh, and then, of course, we have many businesses that are really doing super well and will continue to grow. But we will also be looking at what the macroeconomic situation is. But I, I feel very confident uh, that between the productivity gains as well as the growth we will have, we'll be able to navigate the waters. Ryan, tech stocks have taken a beating. You know, Microsoft, as, as Satya said, has not been immune to this. This is a key way that uh, tech companies have retained their employees by the, the, the attraction of equity. How do you see Microsoft and other companies coping with this? It's really about attracting people who align with the mission and vision of what it is you're trying to build. You think about LinkedIn. When we build great products, people get jobs. They start companies. They learn new skills. We sit at the intersection of what I call doing good and doing well. And that's a very empowering thing to uh, our employees who want to come and work on something like LinkedIn that can have such an amazing uh, and productive and uh, you know, valuable impact on professionals globally. So uh, I see, you know, we recently just reiterated and revisited uh, and enhanced our culture and values of our company to ensure that we have the right foundation uh, to attract the right employees moving forward. But again, I, I just really, feel this strong move in the world towards uh, culture and values being more important than it ever has, especially uh, to attract the right talent to your company. So Satya, one more on this and then we'll move on. But you know, we know Microsoft won't be filling some open roles. You've already said that. You're eliminating some contractor positions. But give us a sense of the scope. Will some of the key priorities like Azure or security be impacted? No, I mean, look, our core businesses of Microsoft Cloud, whether security or uh, our infrastructure, data and AI businesses, which is what predominantly is represented in Azure, or Microsoft 365, the, or Dynamics 365, these are massive growth businesses on a very large base. Uh, so there's going to be growth all around them. Uh, uh, but it's all going to be about what roles have to grow. As I said, our job number one is to make sure that the growth we've had is all sort of landing uh, in a very productive way to drive the, the businesses going forward. Even when it comes to our consumer businesses, uh, we, we know that you know with Windows and with our PC, there was definitely a pull forward. Uh, but we just launched a new release of Windows 11, because at, at some level now, it's about being able to take that one plus billion uh, install base and making the experience better. So we have some fantastic opportunities there. Our browser is growing share. Our gaming is growing share. Uh, so we're going to double down. Obviously, Ryan talked about LinkedIn. Uh, Again, we're not immune to the macroeconomic headwinds, uh, but in every one of the businesses, there are pockets of growth, and that's where we will double down. 
And, you know, since you're joining us from London on a slightly different topic, I, I have to ask, you know, Microsoft seemed to be expecting more regulatory scrutiny of the Activision deal in the UK, but they've just said they're going to escalate their investigation. Have you been surprised by the level of concern that regulators there have expressed? When I look at that, you know, fundamentally, uh, we think that what our sort of end, for us in gaming, we have one goal which is to bring more games to more gamers on all platforms uh, and provide more choice for publishers everywhere and developers everywhere. Uh, and so everything that we are doing with our content, with our, uh, sub, you know, our uh, cloud and community, really is about driving that choice and that opportunity. And so we feel very, very confident. Of course, uh, any acquisition of this size will go through scrutiny, but we feel very, very confident uh, that we'll come out. Uh, you know, we are number four, number five, depending on how you count in gaming. In fact, the number one player, in this case, Sony, I think even in this period, has acquired three companies. So if this is about competition, uh, let us have competition. That was Microsoft CEO Satya Nadella and LinkedIn CEO Ryan Roslansky speaking with our very own Emily Chang. Coming up, millions of people turn to Twitch daily to watch live stream videos. That includes predators exploiting kids through the site. We'll share more of my colleagues' investigation into Twitch. This is Bloomberg. What if everyone at work were an expert communicator? What if every doc, message and email they wrote was perfectly clear and concise? Inbox numbers would drop, customer satisfaction scores would rise and everyone would be more productive. That's where Grammarly comes in. Grammarly is a secure AI writing partner that understands your business and can transform it through better communication. Companies that use Grammarly save an average of 19 days per employee per year. That's because with Grammarly's AI, what used to take a few hours only takes a few clicks like generating an instant first draft in your company voice or tailoring a message to your specific audience and goals. And Grammarly's personalized on-brand writing help is built in everywhere your team works, across 500,000 apps and websites. Plus, it's safe, secure, and already IT-approved. Join 70,000 teams who trust Grammarly with their words and their data. Learn more at Grammarly.com. Grammarly. Easier said. Done. From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox president Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF. An 
eye-opening Bloomberg report is shedding light on some dangers on the popular live stream platform Twitch. Twitch, which is owned by Amazon and touts 31 million daily visitors, is one of the most popular platforms for gamers. Bloomberg reported that a network of child predators have used the platform to track children. Bloomberg's Cecilia D'Anastasio covers the video game industry and broke this story. Cecilia, what did you learn in the course of your reporting? Twitch says it doesn't allow children under 13 to use the platform. However, unlike its streaming competitors, there are relatively few barriers preventing children from getting on the app. Bloomberg found that there are people out there, um, over 2,000 of them, who systematically follow accounts that seem to belong to children on the platform. And around 280,000 accounts that apparently belong to children were targeted this way, according to our research. Cecilia, I want to bring up the statement from the company, from Twitch, and I'll read it to you. Preventing child harm is one of our most fundamental responsibilities as a society. We do not allow children under 13 to use Twitch, and preventing our service from being used for harm is one of our biggest priorities. We know that online platforms can be used to cause harm to children, and we have made extensive investments over the last two years to better stay ahead of bad actors and prevent any users who may be under 13 from accessing Twitch. So they underline the policy, which is no one under the age of 13 can use the platform. What do we know about how Twitch moderates that, monitors the use of the platform? Sure, so Twitch is a live streaming platform, and unlike platforms like YouTube where videos are recorded, it's very challenging to moderate live video because it's happening in real time, especially for child sexual abuse material. Um, Twitch is figuring out solutions to a problem on the fly, and it's a problem that not a lot of other platforms face at the scale that Twitch does. And so Twitch has quadrupled its law enforcement response team over the last two years. Twitch has dumped a lot of resources into preventing um, children from getting on Twitch and from streaming. However, Bloomberg's report has found that these solutions have fallen short and the problem has been exacerbated over the pandemic. Exacerbated over the pandemic. This, this is an issue that we've covered in the show across the industry, social media platforms, online platforms, generally speaking. What are regulators doing, I suppose, at a federal level to, to tackle this issue? It's a very challenging issue to tackle. One thing that is being paid attention to right now, of course, is advertising to children on these platforms. There's a lot of resources being dedicated to preventing children from um, receiving messages from companies when they are not age appropriate to receive those messages. When it comes to moderation, it's a multi-pronged issue that is highly technical. And a lot of the time, tech companies are the ones left in charge of moderating their own platforms. Platforms. Your report is out. What happens next? What's the response? The response has been very large from the Twitch community um, and from people who you know, watch their favorite gamers live stream on the platform. And some of these gamers themselves have commented that this, um, that this is unacceptable for the company um, through which they make a living. However, Twitch itself um, has not made a move to change some of the features that have enabled predators to find and target children on the platform, so it's to be seen whether that will happen. All right. Bloomberg, Cecilia D'Anastasio, thank you.
Meta Platforms has been sued for skirting Apple privacy rules. In a proposed class action lawsuit filed in San Francisco federal court, two Facebook users claim the company built a secret workaround to Apple's 2021 privacy rules and violated state and federal laws limiting unauthorized collection of personal data. Bloomberg's learned that the Securities and Exchange Commission is set to let Wall Street keep payment for order flow deals, according to sources. The practice can involve one brokerage routing retail stock trade orders to another firm for execution rather than onto a brokerage or exchange. Backers say it's led to commission-free trading championed by Robin Hood. But critics question whether traders actually get the best price. All this is part of an SEC overhaul of stock trading rules. Amazon's first Thursday night football game of the season drew an audience of 13 million viewers. That's according to data from measurement firm Nielsen, which suggests that NFL fans across the US could find the game last Thursday. That's despite it not being available on TV nationwide. Amazon's guaranteeing advertisers its exclusive coverage will reach more than 12 million viewers per game, but that's down from the 16.4 million tuning in on Thursday nights last year across Fox, the NFL Network and Amazon. Welcome back to Bloomberg Technology. I'm Ed Ludlow in New York. Dreamforce is back in San Francisco and it's the biggest convention to hit the tech capital since the pandemic era. Thousands are heading to the annual Salesforce conference, including Bloomberg Technology's Emily Chang. She sat down with Salesforce chair and co-CEO Mark Benioff to talk about his next steps. To have 40,000 folks here in San Francisco, in the new Moscone Center, is beautiful. Every hotel is sold out from here to San Jose. Every Airbnb is sold out. It's amazing. And they're all having such a good time and, and learning about technology and learning about how to connect with their customers in a new way using Salesforce. We're going to talk a little bit about the state of the city in a moment. But first, you announced new profitability goals yesterday. Yes. Long-term profitability, aiming for 25% adjusted operating margin in 2026. What makes you feel so ambitious in a downturn? Well, you probably saw this quarter we delivered 7.7 .7 billion. It was larger than an SAP, a company that you know we both admire so greatly. But now we're the largest enterprise apps company in, a wor in the world. That's very exciting. And so we have the highest revenue. And now we want to have very strong margins. And we've taken a goal that when we get to 50 billion, which is right around the corner, we will have 25% uh, operating margin. So you're also doing these carbon offsets, which is fairly unique, more net zero offerings. Do you see this as philanthropy or do you see real revenue generated from the carbon accounting market? Well, I think that when you think about a modern business today, you have to have great revenue, you have to have a great margin. You also have to look at your overall capital allocation. We're buying back $10 billion of our stock. Uh, we just uh, promoted our lead director, Robin Washington. But when you think about the values of a company today, trust, customer success, innovation, equality, we've spoken about all of those, Emily, for a decade or more. Now we're talking about sustainability. Everybody has a personal story about the environment. Everybody knows what's happening. So every company needs to go net zero. And so we have a new net zero cloud. We have a net zero marketplace. We have the ability to help all of our customers go net zero. This is extremely important. 
And we even started, you know, our Trillion Tree program, 1T.org. We've made phenomenal progress. This is very important that we get a trillion trees. We need to sequester 200 gigatons of carbon. And we need to energize an ecopreneur revolution. And we can do all that, and we are doing it here at Dreamforce. Meantime, the economy is in a major slump. You've got record inflation, rising rate hikes, and ongoing war. How concerned are you about the outlook and, and your level of uncertainty? What do you see? Well, what I see is that we just went through a pandemic. Uh, and I know we talked a lot during the pandemic for a couple of years, and it was tough for a lot of folks, including me and you, we're at home a lot of the time trying to run our daily businesses and make things happen. And the government invested a lot into the market, and now we're coming out of the pandemic. And I think those e-commerce charts that we see a lot are great metaphors. You know, the ones that go like, in the pandemic, out of the pandemic. But if you connect e-commerce from 10 years ago to today, the chart is still quite up and to the right. It's just that you had two years in the pandemic. So I think the economy is normalizing. The world is normalizing. Currencies are quite aggressively fluctuating. We've been talking about that since May. And uh, uh, I think, look, what do I know? This is my first pandemic. But in the future, I know that after a pandemic, you're going to have some adjustment period. Meta and Google are just the latest companies cutting jobs. I spoke to Tim Cook. He said Apple is going to be more deliberate about spending. Satya Nadella just told me today we're going to do more with less. I know Salesforce slowed hiring a bit earlier in the year, but are you expecting any job cuts or cost cuts? What's your strategy to navigate this? I think what you're seeing for all of these companies, including ours, is we all invested aggressively in the last two years and we are absorbing those investments into our businesses now. So we have a lot online and moving forward and we need to enable that and energize it and motivate it. So you're right, we did slow slightly our hiring, but uh, do I see other changes? You know, who knows what's gonna happen? It's not certainly not our intention. Our intention is to continue to get to $50 billion in revenue by FY26. Last year we did 26 billion. This year we're gonna do 31 billion. And by fiscal year 26, we want to do 50 billion. Your co-CEO, Brett Taylor, is chair of Twitter. I know he's probably been a little busy with that. I saw... Um, probably so a little. I saw you and Brett on stage in bunny ears. Yes. I want to know how it's going. Like, how is it going to have a co-CEO? Are you spending a little less time on the day-to-day -day now that he's here? Well, as you know, I love Brett. I've loved him for a long time. We've had a great relationship, a multi-decade relationship. When he started his company, I invested in it. I always wanted to acquire it. We're so lucky we did acquire it. Then I moved him up slowly in the company. Chief product officer, chief operating officer, now co-CEO. I think we got a fantastic leader of the company. Look, you have to understand, these are big jobs, CEO. These CEOs, I know them all. There's no S under here. If I take my shirt off, it, I'm just skin and bones. There's no S. And I think that having a partner like Brett Taylor to help me is incredible, and I could not be more grateful. Yeah, it's so much value, and it's so impressive so and how important. how much longer are you going to be doing this co-CEO thing? Well, as long as, you know, everybody wants me to do it. So far, it seems to be working. Um, you're giving another huge education grant. This is the 10th year of it. I actually interviewed you, I believe, the very first you year. You did. You were you very skeptical. <laughs> You're like, there's no way you're going to do this for 10 years. Well, you did it for 10 years. And we did it. We're given over $100 million to our San Francisco and Oakland public schools. This has been 
very important for them, especially as they're exiting the pandemic. They're getting another 25 million. This is not the end of the program. It's set up to go in perpetuity. How are you thinking very about exciting. the state of the U.S. education system right now, and is the government doing enough? I think that our public education system has to be at the top of every leader's mind, and you cannot delegate it to the government. You as a CEO or as a business leader or in another part of your organization, you need to go down to your local public school, three blocks away from your house, you know where yours is, knock on the door, introduce yourself to the principal and say, how can I help? I built a new playground. Parker Harris painted the building. You know, we installed technology. We did volunteerism and mentorship. Everybody can do something. We cannot do everything. Companies have a lot of resources. We have the, some of the best, most exciting companies in the country. These companies need to be supporting our local public schools and also our local public hospitals. You know we've done a lot with UCSF here in San Francisco. And public parks as well. We just opened a massive $100 million public park called Tunnel Tops. You know that my wife is the chairman of it. It's incredible. These are the things that CEOs and companies should have their eyes on, figure out how to put a light on it, bring their customers in, and bring all stakeholders together. That was Salesforce chair and co-CEO Mark Benioff, along, of course, with Bloomberg's Emily Chang. You can watch the full interview at Bloomberg.com or on YouTube. Coming up, we're seeing an exodus of executives at crypto firms. More on that in a moment. This is Bloomberg. What if everyone at work were an expert communicator? What if every doc, message and email they wrote was perfectly clear and concise? Inbox numbers would drop. Customer satisfaction scores would rise and everyone would be more productive. That's where Grammarly comes in. Grammarly is a secure AI writing partner that understands your business and can transform it through better communication. Companies that use Grammarly save an average of 19 days per employee per year. That's because with Grammarly's AI, what used to take a few hours only takes a few clicks, like generating an instant first draft in your company voice or tailoring a message to your specific audience and goals. And Grammarly's personalized on-brand writing help is built in everywhere your team works, across 500,000 apps and websites. Plus, it's safe, secure, and already IT-approved. Join 70,000 teams who trust Grammarly with their words and their data. Learn more at Grammarly.com. Grammarly. Easier said. Done. From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox president Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF. Time for our daily crypto report. A number of cryptocurrencies, including Bitcoin, are ling lingering near two-year lows as the Fed's inflation fight takes a toll on risky assets. Bloomberg's Katie Greifeld is here to discuss. How are you, by the way? I'm so great being on set with you. I thought you were a deep fake for the longest well, time. Well, it's... 
for context for the global audience, I'm visiting from San Francisco, mm -hmm. but it's been a long week, the highlight mm -hmm. of which has been the Fed. Yes. And digital assets essentially did not escape the volatility that we saw across financial markets post-Fed. Not at all. So you actually saw Bitcoin outperform traditional stocks a little bit on Thursday. But if you zoom out, and people on Twitter will always tell you to zoom out, it's just been a brutal stretch for Bitcoin, down 58%, almost 59% year to date. You compare that to the NASDAQ 100. These two tend to trade in lockstep, but the right. magnitude of losses in Bitcoin so much greater. The NASDAQ 100 down only, only in quotes, 30% or so year to date. I'm going to ask you the most 2021 question I can. <laughs> Whatever happened to Bitcoin being an inflation hedge? Well, it's a bit of a tortured answer that I'm going to give you because, again, if you post a chart... You're not torturing on... me. You're torturing the audience. <laughs> I am. So if you posted a chart of Bitcoin on Twitter, everyone will always tell you to zoom out. And that's sort of the answer that I have to give about okay. Bitcoin as an inflation hedge. Advocates will still say, in the grand fullness of time, it is an inflation hedge. When you have central banks really printing money is the answer you would get. I feel that right now we are at the test of that thesis because now you have central banks around the globe removing stimulus, tightening liquidity, right. hiking central bank rates. We haven't seen this environment with Bitcoin as a mainstream asset. This has really never happened before. So we're watching that experiment. In I, it's kind of funny because it's the first time in our lifetime, at least, where we've had a pandemic, but we've yeah. also had inflation. So it's been a lot. It's um, been a lot. Volatility in digital currencies, digital assets, volatility in the industry. Indeed. There have been a lot of you know, well-known founders CEOs of some of the more well-known crypto-related startups departing. Absolutely. Of course, the big headline, which this program covered well yesterday, Jesse Powell, the Kraken CEO and co-founder, stepping down from the exchange from that role. Of course, uh, Chief Operating Officer David Ripley is going to succeed him. But they're just that's just part of a trend that we're seeing, to your point. Of course, Michael Saylor stepping down as MicroStrategy CEO in August really kicked this off. A few weeks later, you had Michael Morrow from Genesis do the same. So it's this interesting moment in the industry where you are seeing a lot of upheaval in the C-suite, a lot of transition, and it seems like the face of who's actually leading the industry right now is changing. Of course, we do have a lot of stalwarts, right. such as Sam Bankman-Fried, such as Michael Novogratz, still in their position. So it's not completely new, but definitely a time of transition. I've got, I got two more questions, but you know, as somebody that's covered Silicon Valley startups, forget, you know, necessarily crypto. Mm -hmm. A lot of this is like a changing of the guard, right? Sometimes they're pushed out. Exactly. Sometimes they've had enough. Sometimes investors get involved, right? This is a really critical time for the industry. Talk to us kind of about that changing of the guard well, and the moment it falls in. To your experience, to put this in your world, covering Silicon Valley, it's hard to transition f away from a founder leading right. the company. And we are seeing a little bit of that. Of course, it'll be really interesting to see where Kraken goes from here because the founders become really the identity of the company. So it's going to be interesting to see how the crypto industry handles this moment, who's going to step up to the plate, and who ultimately continues to hang around. Right. in transition, who becomes sort of the Mark Zuckerberg of the crypto industry in just the sense that he's been there. For hey, real quick, 
did the merge matter? Did the merge matter? That's a really good question. It turned, it mattered in that it looks like it turned to a sell the news event. Obviously, Ether rallied so heavily into the merge. It doesn't much matter for the end experience if you're a holder of Ether. It's going to be uh, important to see whether it does lead to this sort of influx of development in terms of the apps on the Ethereum blockchain. Uh, and we still have a few more tests to go through when it comes to the merge. It's not completely over yet, but the bulk of it is out of the way. Did the merge matter? Bloomberg's Katie Greifeld, thank you very much. Add impossible foods to the list of nearly 400 organizations that pledged this week to make their operations more sustainable as part of Climate Week. Impossible has joined e-commerce giant Amazon's The Climate Pledge. Each company that signs the pledge commits to taking responsibility for decarbonizing their businesses and reaching net zero by 2040. Here with a Bloomberg exclusive interview is Impossible Foods CEO Peter McGuinness. Peter, welcome. Well, thanks. Good it's to a be pledge. here. It's a pledge, right? How it is a do pledge. you fulfill the pledge? How do you make this happen in real substantive steps? First of all, having the consciousness okay. um, as a company. Secondly, your business practices. Thirdly, your business model. So for us, climate's been at the center of Impossible from the very, very beginning. And if you look, if we sold 50 million pounds of Impossible beef, um, we, would, we would avoid 1.3 billion pounds of CO2. Because we, you're doing a like-for-like with animal beef. With right. real beef, right? Um, 4.5 billion gallons of water, 37 million trees, of 50 million pounds of plant-based beef, displacing the animal product. Right. So we're unique in the sense that it's central and core to our mission, and the better the company does, the more good it does for the planet. So if you put the comparator to one side, forget animal product, mm-hmm. focus on plant, how do you improve your performance in that respect? Yeah, it's also how you run your facilities right. and, and your distribution network and your supply chain network, and we all need to do better, right? Whether your business is inherently better for the planet or not, we can all improve upon our operations over time. With tech? Right? With technology will enable that improvement, always, right? So I always find this fascinating, one of your mission statements, or at your core, you are a food technology company. Mm -hmm. What is the technology that makes Impossible different from any competitor? There are lots of generic names out there now, right? Making a plant-based meat product. Sure, I mean, in the end, we have 410 patents around how we make our food. And I'm not gonna get into all 410. We haven't got time, but yeah. No, 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 no. But I mean, technology enables us to make great food. And we're biased, but we think we have the best plant-based food in the market. And that is enabled by technology. And many, many patents around that technology and some of our ingredients, like heme. I want to know how you grow sales. If I walk down to a Starbucks, I can, if I'm so inclined, buy an impossible breakfast sandwich. And it's kind of alongside an animal-based product breakfast sandwich. You know, how do you boost sales, not just through distribution? How do you get those new products in the face of consumers? Yeah, so we're a tech-enabled food company, right? So we also have to behave like a food company. We're on grocery shelves. We're on menus um, at restaurants. And so consumers have to understand our food better and why it's better for them and why it's better for the planet. So one piece of it is distribution and accessibility, and we have a lot of room to go. You know, we have 400 TDPs. We could go up to 4,000. We're in 40,000 locations. We could go up to well over 100,000 locations. So accessibility and distribution is a piece of it. 
but there's low awareness around plant-based meat, and there's very low understanding of what it is. And I think the category in and of itself has done a pretty lousy job of communicating it, and we haven't done a great job either. So look to us to explain it to consumers so that they're more attracted to it. Well, some raising consumers would say, actually, if you look at it, the ingredients, the caloric content, it's not healthy in, you know, quote unquote. What would you say to those consumers? Say, whoa, this isn't that healthy. Yeah, I mean, so you get in that processed argument, right? Right, exactly. And to me, process is a Twinkie. Okay. And it's artificial ingredients. So we do have many ingredients to improve texture, taste, flavor, so that it mirrors the animal product. Right. But they're all plant-based. Right. <laughs> they're natural. So I think the definition of processed is another thing that's misunderstood, and there's a lot of myths around it, and that needs to be directly communicated and cleared up. We talked about the relationship with Starbucks. You have a relationship with Burger King, and you've trialed other products, kind of a broader range, yeah. and some of them have not stuck. What's your assessment of that? No, we've, we haven't. So the original Whopper is still available nationwide right. at Burger King. We've added the King burger, and we've added a Southwest seasonal burger, and now we're testing a chicken patty. So in some markets, we have four menu items. So we continue to expand Burger King. How will that go? How will that rollout go, expansion go? Depending on the test results, it'll go national. And so, so far, so good. So we feel great about the Burger King um, partnership, and it's expanding. Inflation. How are you dealing with it? Listen, I think inflation is a really hard thing for most businesses and certainly for consumers, right? Um, For us, it hasn't really affected our business. Growing at 65, 70%, we've had a lot of fixed cost absorption, a lot of operating leverage off of that growth. That's the first thing. Second thing is we have long-term contracts right. um, with all of our key ingredient suppliers. Um, and so we haven't had that pass cost to us, and so therefore we have not passed it on to the consumers. So we've kept flat prices as meat prices have gone up, depending on chicken, beef, pork, anywhere from 18 to 30%. So our gap to the animal product has never been tighter in the history of our company. Could you cut prices to be more competitive? We could cut prices. Will you cut prices um, to be more competitive? We'll, we'll, we'll look at everything. I think everything's on the table to make it more available and more right. accessible and displace the animal product so we can maximize our mission of reversing climate change. You talked about the messaging. One of your competitors, Beyond Meat, is, is facing a number of ta- challenges. Do you kind of zero in on them? Do you take a wider view? You know, how do you get on top of, of, of a busy field? Yeah, I think, look, I think there will be consolidation in our category. I see one or two brands plus private label moving forward. I don't look at uh, Beyond Meat's playbook. We have our own playbook. Um, and again, we're trying to displace the animal. We're not trying to displace other plant-based meat companies. In fact, we celebrate other plant-based meat companies because they're doing right by the environment. So, so our goal is not to steal share from other plant-based meat companies. Really quick, you don't seem in any hurry to IPO. What are the conditions for that? We're in no hurry because we don't need to, right? Because our balance sheet is strong and our cash position is good. Um, and so we will IPO when we want to and or need to, and the market is better than it is today. So we'll keep you posted on that one. In a sentence, what will the next meat be, plant-based meat? We already have chicken, beef, pork, right? So there's a lot of experimentation with seafood, whether it be tuna or salmon. Right. Um, But we cover breakfast, lunch, dinner, chicken, beef, pork. (laughs) 
right. <laughs> so we're good. I, I, I cannot wait to see Impossible Food CEO Peter McGuinness. Thank you so much for being with us here. Thanks for York. having me, Ed. That does it for this edition of Bloomberg Technology Friday. We have Bain Capital Global Tech Practice, David Crawford. He'll discuss how Web3 can rewrite the rules of digital user identity and disrupt some of today's largest tech platforms. Don't forget to check out our podcast. You can find it on the terminal as well as online on Apple, Spotify and iHeart. This is Bloomberg. From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox President Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF.